0: All right, take your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 1, and, and, and I think that song is incredibly fitting to remind us why we're here. We're, we're not here to celebrate anything, anyone else but Jesus, and, and that, that's a little bit of a, a churchy saying, so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend some time unpacking that and getting you to understand why it is that that's what we're here to do. That's, that is why we're here to celebrate who Jesus is. So um, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. Let me read the passage um, we're going to start in verse 24, and then uh, I will then uh, go ahead and pray. <laughs> we got all kinds of weird things going on this morning over the side. Pray for if you're on this side of the room, pray for this side of the room. We're having issues already. <laughs> all right, let me let me go ahead and read the, the text here. Starting Colossians chapter one. Bill, I'm not 50, but I just want to look like you, so I got my goggles too, brother. All right, Colossians chapter one, starting verse 24 it says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I've become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for for those in Laodicea and for, for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged, joined together in love, so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ." In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray together. Father, I ask as we look at your word today that we would be overwhelmed with what we find. God, not because you speak powerful truths, not because you speak quaint sayings, but because in your word we see Christ. So so God, open our eyes to see him more clearly. God, I ask that you would guide my mouth, my tongue, Lord, help me to speak what should be spoken and to avoid what should be avoided. God, I ask that in our time together today that at the end of it, each one of us would leave here with just one name on their lips, the name of Jesus. For it's in his good and precious name I pray, amen. Amen, so <clears throat> as you're looking at this passage, one of the things that stands out to you is, is how much is in there. Um, another thing that stands out to you is I mean, he's not complaining, but Paul sure is talking about how hard his work is. I mean, you you look at verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Verse 25, I've become the servant of the church. Verse 29, I labor for this, striving with God's strength. Chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you. I mean, what, what Paul is doing here is saying to the church at Colossae, he's saying, I am working hard. So I don't know about you, it was a beautiful day yesterday. How many of you had the opportunity to uh, put in a little labor yourself in your backyard? I did some sanding. I was telling the guys in the, uh, the kitchen before we came out is I still have sawdust in my nose. That's pleasant. That's something you wanted to know this morning, isn't it? At least I didn't show you, so be thankful, okay? So, well, you know, you do work. You work hard. You labor. You, you kind of dig into it. You get exhausted. Some of you are planning on running the 6K here in a couple of weeks. I pray that you are training because if you think for a moment that by not running for a year, you're ready to show up and jog a 6K, you have another thing coming. I don't know if you've watched the end of some marathons. I think, I think giving you and granting you the uh, uh, um, comparison to someone who runs a marathon is very gracious on my part, I think. But when you see the end of a marathon, somebody who's actually even trained to run those 26 miles, and they, they hit that wall around mile 22, which is just ridiculous even to say, I hit the wall around step 22, (laughs) Um, but they hit the wall around mile 22, and you get to the end, they look like a newborn giraffe trying to get to the finish line, just like, like, come on, you can do it, and you feel like that. Well, when Paul says, I labor for this, that is the word he's using. I'm making every effort like an athlete trying to get to the finish line for you. I just I need to keep pushing, it gets difficult. And for Paul, I mean, you're, you're aware of his, his, his obvious problem here is that he's in prison writing this. And I'm, I'm struggling and I'm doing it for the church. I want to serve the people of the church. And so I don't do this often, but I want to make an immediate application right out of the gate right now and make it very personal. There are a group of people, a number of people, who work their tails off to accomplish what it is that God has called us to do here as a church. Now you remember that what he says is I am doing all this verse 25 to make the word of God fully known. We have a chunk of people, and that's a technical term, who give everything they have in order to accomplish that here at this place to make the word of God fully known. Now I'm aware, very aware, that the moment you attempt to give honor to somebody who deserves honor, there are about 42 other people who you leave out in the process. And so what I want to do, though, is not shy back from giving honor to those who deserve honor. So if you're not somebody who comes up right now, that I'm not to the stage, I'm going to be nice, I'm not going to embarrass anybody, please please grace, some grace towards me, some humility towards me, I, I promise. Your turn will come, just keep your head down and your hand to the plow. We see it. But these people tend to not get recognized in a public way. You know why? Because they always try to point it to somebody else. That's why they're a joy to be around. These are our elders, our pastors, and our staff members. So I'm going to throw some faces up here, some beautiful pictures. We have our elder Andy Whitfield, our counseling pastor, the, the dazzling Bill Brown, Dave Baldwin, Mr. Caffeine himself, Dave Brown, one of our state troopers, some bald, crazy guy in the middle, and Jason Merson, who I like to call the Minister of Defense. He's responsible for our security here in the building and, and, and works in worship as well. So, so those are a number of people who have sacrificed much in order to make it sh- clear and sure and certain that the Word of God is fully known, but it doesn't end there. So does our worship pastor, Jeremy Sorensen. So does our executive pastor, Mark Andrews. So does Mike Myers, one of our elders, one of who likes to sit in the lowest seats possible. It's not even like a biblical application. It's not like you sit at the end of the table, you'll be brought up to the front of the table. Not like one of those. He likes to get into a conference room and then grab the little lever on the side and he's like, <laughs> which is fine in the meeting. It's the next day when you go in, you nearly kill yourself when you try to sit down. You're like, oh! So there's a little trivia. Miles Bry, hey, you could be praying for Miles. He's doing his yearly trek on the Appalachian Trail. He's in bear country, so you can pray for not like Chicago. I mean, like real bears. <laughs> Nick Pentagakis, one of our elders, and then the the newbie on staff, Patrick Boyd. Uh, I just lost my connection, so if you could go to the next slide, and then we've got uh, Brenda Miller, who is actually one of the, the staff members you wouldn't know as a staff member because she's so behind the scenes, and yet she does things that we all see every day. She pays the bills. So, yeah, Brenda, you got Chris Sturdy, who's one of our, our ministry assistants, who messed with me this morning and last week, keeps sitting on this side during first service. They're second service people and they belong there, so a little church discipline. Dan Wance, who works hard every week to make sure the facility is ready and prepared for us. Dana Weaver, who keeps all the magic happening. I'm going to tell you right now this MVP of the team, without a question, is Dana Weaver. So we got to make sure we say that. Denise Belty, who is a co-chair and also uh, somebody who is a rock in the office. I love the fact that you can always count on Denise being here when somebody needs to be here. Denise is consistent and has been working here for a long time. She just celebrated her 22nd year, 23rd year, 22nd year of being on staff at Uniontown Bible Church. So give her a round of applause. I mean, she endured it all. Donna Haynes, who is our fearless summer camp leader. I mean, she does a fantastic job pushing through and dealing with all of the youngins and putting together the programming for all that. Next slide, please. We've got Jen Wood, who is our children's ministry and deserves hazard pay just for that alone. Even if it's just child check-in, she deserves hazard pay for that. Kelly Roth works with our young people on Wednesday nights for Awana, has done a wonderful job working with her and her volunteers, and the best-looking staff member by far... Stephanie Taylor, who is our communications director, and then, you know, we're kind of the children of the corn, too. If you've been to our website, you get to see some of the wonderful pictures we get to take together, and so what I I wanted to do by putting them up there is isn't be like, so now you know who our elders, pastors, and staff are. Yeah, that does serve that purpose, but far greater than that is I wanted to put them in front of you and remind you that they're not people who are here serving just for the sake of serving because they've got nothing better to do. These are people who are here giving, sacrificing, laboring to make the word of God fully known to you. And so we need to be more appreciative of that, not that we haven't been, but sometimes silent gratitude does nothing. And so this morning, what I want to do, if you're a staff, pastor, or elder, I'm going to ask that you stand, and I'm going to pray for you. Right now, right here. So if you're staff elder pastor, would you please stand where you are and let's, let's pray together. Join me as I pray. Father God, I thank you for each of these people here, who are here among us even right now. I thank you for those who aren't here right now. I thank you for this team, this family that you have put together. Father, I thank you for the fact that you love us far greater than we could ever even have imagined and that, that we get to, as church family, Work together. We get to join each other, link arm in arm, and then continue to work about making you and your word fully known. I thank you. Thank you that on Monday night, the elders and pastors were able to get together and just fellowship and laugh. I thank you for that camaraderie and that, that, that friendship that we have as we continue to, to work towards pushing the, the mission vision that you have called us to here in this place. I thank you that on Wednesday during our staff meeting, we laughed hilariously till it hurt. That we were able to stop and then pray for, for all these brothers and sisters in our congregation and then get some work done. Lord, it's, it's an amazing thing, and I've said it and we said it again. It's an amazing thing to be able to serve you, but it's even better when we get to serve you with people we love. So God, I thank you for these people, their sacrifice on your behalf. Lord, I pray you would richly reward each and every one of them. Thank you for the blessing they are in my life. I pray, Lord, it would continue for many, many years. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Let's, let's give him a round of applause. <clears throat> All right, so, so as, we, as we walk through this, this is what I want you to know. As we recognize them, as we see them, as we continue to pray for them, as we, we thank them, as we identify the labor that it goes, goes into trying to accomplish the, the making the Word of God fully known, what we need to remember, it's, it's not about extraordinary men and women of character. It's about the great Savior that we serve. It's about the wonderful Savior who who reminds us time and time again that he wants to reach the weakest, the most broken, the most gruesome sinners, and that each and every one of us gets to be a part of it. So when you think about the labor, the hard work, man, when you consider the good news being such good news, the hard work is completely worth it. When you, when you look at the good news, look, look at verse 26. He talks about the, um, the mystery which was hidden for ages and generations, but, but is now revealed to his saints. And, and God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says this is an incredible mystery. So let, let's talk for a minute about that, that glorious mystery. Let's talk for a second about how good the good news actually is. You remember that the, 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 your biblical story you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and God calls a man named Abram and says I want you to leave your country and I'm going to bring you to a place that you don't know about right now but I'm going to bring you to that place So I want you to to leave with your family and can follow me and and as you do that as you put your trust in me as you follow me then I am going to bless you your family and then all nations of the earth through you and because of what I'm going to do in your life Abram I'm going to flood the earth with my glory. And now, now, as you read the story of Abraham, you fast forward a little bit, and you look at Abraham's life, and you got some questions, don't you? I mean, first of all, how's he going to have a, a descendant? How is he going to be, have a family that's greatly blessed when he doesn't even have a single son? And then you start seeing the, the, the children come in Abraham's life, and you're like, this is getting sketchy already. You have Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob. Jacob has all of his sons. You're like, okay, I'm starting to understand how this works, but then you realize his sons uh, have lost their minds. They're so enraged with jealousy over Joseph and his life that they sell Joseph into slavery and pretend like he's dead. But as you continue that storyline, what you find out is that God did all of those things with a purpose and intentionality so that later when the famine would come, Joseph was established in Egypt And so Jacob's other sons would go to Egypt to find relief from the famine, and it just so happened they found themselves at the foot of Joseph asking for help. Joseph moves his entire family into Egypt and now as they're in Egypt, they begin to grow in huge number. You look at Exodus chapter one and you see that that the the Israelites are just, there's there's more Israelites and more Israelites and everything they do is prospering and they're getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph because your generation's removed now starts to freak out a little bit and says, okay, we can't have this nation rise up in our midst and overthrow us. So let's, let's oppress the Israelites. And so the the Egyptian pharaoh makes Israel slaves and then makes their lives very, very difficult. After a number of years, those slaves cry out to God for deliverance and God hears them and he speaks to Moses through a burning bush and says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt and lead my people from Pharaoh, from Egypt, towards the promised land. Moses goes back and, and there's a lot to that story, but as Moses begins to lead uh, god's children out of egypt along the way towards the promised land god does something he gives them the law what what i think uh, this week is god's most impressed on my heart is not only did god give the israelites the law he gave them a sacrificial system knowing that they were going to break god's holy law and establishing for them a way to bring peace into their lives between them and God once again. Through that sacrificial system, understanding that that all sin requires a blood atonement, now, now fast forward after the law has been given and the sacrificial system has been given. Now what you have is, is prophets being brought time and time again to remind the people not only of their sin, but to call the people back to God and to remind the people of, of God's mercy and grace in drawing them back to himself. The prophets continued to call out for the people to return to God. You remember they, they set up a, a moving tabernacle, right? It was kind of a mobile home for God. And this, this moving tabernacle had the very visible presence of God in it. The Shekinah glory dwelled there. And it was a place for sacrifice. It was a place for worship. But so, so, so you have that. Now, now here, you step aside and you go back to what God promised to Abram. And you can't get out of your head. Here's a tabernacle that only Israel is allowed to enter and to worship at. This is supposed to be a whole world thing. This was supposed to be a blessing to the entire world. Every, every person who takes a breath, God said, because of what I'm doing through you, Abraham, that then, then I am going to take care of the entire world. How, how does that work? I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a moving tabernacle. Does everybody have to chase the thing down? I mean, is it, is it like uh, today we've got eight billion people in the world nearly? So this moving tabernacle, is it like we have to, eight billion people have to do an annual Mecca to get to the tabernacle? Or is it like fine artwork where one museum will lend their art to another one on the other side of the world? Is Israel going to lend us their tabernacle for a period of time so we're all set and we get to experience the presence of God in sacrifice and in worship? I mean, this, it's failing to make sense and so, so the idea that God is going to bless us remains a mystery as you look through that story until the day that Jesus comes. Until the day that Jesus completes the law in his obedient life until the day that Jesus gives himself on the cross, until the day he dies, he resurrects from the dead, and then sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to seal us, and then we become the very temple of God, the dwelling place of God, or as Paul said, Christ in us. There's this hope of glory that comes with it. so there's no need for a tabernacle anymore. No need for a temple anymore. There's no need for sacrifices. There's no need for, for priests, because it's finished in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. But, you stop there in the story, it's still just for Israel. I mean, the rest of the mystery, not only is the mystery how God is going to be in us and we don't have to run to the tabernacle to worship, but the rest of the story is how it affects the, how it affects the, uh, the rest of the world. But at this point, even Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, as, as Peter preaches that, that incredible message and 3,000 souls get saved, they're all Hebrew souls. But it's still only about Israel. Until you get to Acts chapter 10, and Cornelius, a Gentile, calls Peter and says, we want you to come and teach us. And Peter shows up at Cornelius' house and says, so why am I here? And Cornelius lays it out, and Peter says, all right, here's the truth about Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he rose again from the dead. And Cornelius and the other Gentile people in his home are like, we believe! And Peter's like, oh it's screwed up again. The question became, can Gentiles become Christian? Is this message of grace and mercy for this Gentile home? I mean, it never has been up till that point. And so, thankfully, you get to Acts chapter 11, and this council gathers, and this, this cracks me up, this council of church leaders gather to vote on if God is allowed to save Gentiles or not. And thankfully for us, phew, they said yes, so we're okay. Christ in us the hope of glory the mystery for the gentiles if you are not of hebrew heritage my friend that's for you i think we forget that so regularly how significant it is that this beautiful good news of jesus christ broke down the wall that 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 kept us separated not only from god but even from our jewish brothers it broke down this wall that that existed, and, and this maybe okay. I really want you to get this, <laughs> so I'm going to use an illustration that's uh, from one of John Phillips's uh, commentaries. He he talks about how there's a man uh, from Moab who's up on a hill and he's looking down over the plain and he sees the tabernacle, and he's overwhelmed by what he sees. So he comes down off of the hill and he approaches the tabernacle, one of the doors, and, and there standing at one of the doors is a gatekeeper. And, the, and he walks up to the gatekeeper and he says, hey, can, can, can I go in there? And the gatekeeper's like, well, you're obviously not from around here because no Israelite would ever ask that. This is their place. Where are you from? I'm from Moab. Oh, I'm sorry this isn't for you. You can't come in because you're a Moabite, you're a, a Gentile. No Moabite can go into the presence of God until after the 10th generation in their family. And the Moabite looks sad. Well, what would I need to do to get in there? And the gatekeeper just kind of snorts to himself like, yeah, well, you'd, you'd have to be born as an Israelite. I wish I had been born an Israelite. And as he looks up again, he, he's looking into the courtyard of the tabernacle and he can, he can see a priest who is standing out at the, uh, the, the brazen laver washing his hands after he had offered a sacrifice. And he wipes off his hands and then he walks back into the temple, or sorry, the tabernacle proper, into the interior of the tabernacle and you can, you can see the, the face of the Moabite light up. And he goes, wait, 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 what's, what's in there? I mean, that, that other building, that main part of the tent, what, What's in there? The gatekeeper says, oh, that's the tabernacle itself. And there's a lampstand and a, a table, an altar of gold. And that man that you saw, he was a priest. So what he'll do is he'll go into that, that, that temple proper there and he'll, he'll trim the, 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 the uh, lamp. He'll eat the bread that's on the table and he'll burn incense as he worships the living God. And he'll, he'll burn that, that incense on the, the golden altar. And the Moabite says, oh, man. I wish I was an Israelite so I could do that. I would love to help trim the lamp and, and eat the, the showbread on the table. I would, I would love to burn incense to worship this incredible God. I wish I was an Israelite. And the gatekeeper says, oh, no, my man, no. No, even I can't do that. Because in order to worship in the holy place, you not only have to be born an Israelite, but you have to be born into the tribe of Levi, into the family of Aaron, no less. Oh man. What else is in there? He says, "Well, yeah, I, there's a veil. It's beautiful, and I'm told it divides the the tabernacle in two. And so, so beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place or the holy of holies." Oh, that sounds incredible. What's in the holy of holies? Well, if you you go there, there's the ark of the covenant. I don't know if you've ever heard of the ark. Well, the ark's there, and inside the ark has some, some relics, some memorials of our history inside of it. And on top of the ark, there's this, this golden mercy seat that has cherubim on either side. And you see that up there? That cloud? That's the Shekinah glory of Yahweh. And that Shekinah glory settles in on top of the mercy seat. And the Moabites are like, ah. man, I wish I was a priest! It would be unbelievable to go into the holy of holies and and look at the glory of God and worship him there in the beauty of his holiness. And the gatekeeper's like, no, brother, you couldn't do that. Only the high priest can go into the most holy place. Only he can go. Nobody else can. The heart of the Moabite sinks again. Man, only if I had been born an Israelite the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron, and was a priest. I mean, not any priest, but the the high priest. I would go into the Holy of Holies every day. I mean, three times a day just so I could worship at the feet of the glorious God who fills this place with his Shekinah glory. You would never be able to get me out of there. Oh, but that's where you're wrong, sir. Because actually the high priest can only go in one time a year. And that, only after going through all of the ritualistic cleansings to make sure that his sin was taken care of by sacrifice and offering. So the Moabite walked away. Because he knew he had no hope of ever entering there. In fact, no gentile had any hope until Jesus it's Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 therefore my brothers and my sisters since we have boldness to enter that sanctuary through the blood of Jesus He's started for us anew in a living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. See, the reality is this. The mystery is no more a mystery. The mystery has now been revealed. It's the amazing Promise that God had made in its ultimate fulfillment that Christ came, and therefore the glory of God is flooding the earth. It's not just for Israel anymore, it's for all of those who would confess their sin and accept Jesus as their substitute, believing He's the Son of God who died in their place, who purchased their freedom, who purchased their pardon, who purchased their life, and provided them peace. Peace. The good news. Is about peace with God. And that's why we should labor for the proclamation of making sure everybody hears in full about the Word of God. Because I don't care who you listen to on the radio, I don't care what cultural icon. You're being discipled by. Many of them will stand in front of you and say, let me tell you who Jesus really was. He was a good man, wonderful rabbi, quite the teacher. That, that, that's not what the word of God says, is it? I think if we remember, the word of God says that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation, everything being created by him, the heaven, the earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything, and God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth, things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Because the good news is so good, we joyfully dive into the work. We joyfully go in. And, and what Paul says is verse 28, we proclaim him We don't proclaim a system. We don't proclaim uh, um, anything about a a, a strain of particular theology, not not about rules, not about a favorite author, a favorite book, or the latest and greatest conference. We proclaim him. It's about Jesus. We don't dumb him down so that people like him. We don't try to water it down to make Jesus popular, but we talk about him in truth, in all of his majesty and all of his glory because he is the very image of God. And to water down who Jesus is, to water down who God is. And so we joyfully celebrate the fact that Jesus dealt with the outcasts with mercy and grace, kindness and power. But we cannot ignore how he interacted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other religious leaders who seemed to think they had their stuff all together. You know how Jesus dealt with them? He dismantles them. We need to present Jesus in his totality. If for no other reason, it's because he's the window, our window into the mystery of God. So we preach Christ. And it says not only do we pr- proclaim him, preach him, but we warn, we warn, we, we stand up here and warn. And, and that's not just because, okay, okay. We're not a movement. We're not about attendance. We're not about an organization being bent on changing laws and lifestyle. It's not about a system of leadership or a form of religion. This is all about the one way to bring peace between God and man. And so why do we warn? Don't you know by standing up in front of a group of people and warning them and telling them that Jesus is the only way, that you run the risk of emptying some seats? Yeah, but, but, but that's not about the seats! <laughs> Why do I warn? Because someday I will stand before God and give account for how I handled his word. And so we warn because there is no other way to peace with God. We warn because there are people sitting in this room who have willingly rejected God's gift of Jesus Christ. We warn because there are people in this room who have blindly replaced the gift of Jesus Christ with legalism. Christ is the only answer. So we warn. So we proclaim him warning and teaching. We, we keep pointing back to what the scripture teaches about our great and awesome God. We keep pointing back to the fact that Jesus did what we couldn't do for ourselves by making peace with God. We keep running to the scripture and, and reading it and how we're a, a new creature in Jesus and how being a new creature in Jesus changes everything. It changes how we relate to loved ones. It changes how we relate to those who aren't necessarily on the loved ones list. It changes how we react to difficulty, how we react to tragedy, how we react to the unknown, how we react to heartbreak. When you are a new creature in Jesus, it changes everything. And so we, we keep teaching those things. And when you, when you proclaim him or preach him, when you warn, when you teach these things, what it leads to eventually is full life transformation. He says, we do these things, verse 28, so that we may present everybody mature in Jesus Christ. Um, yeah do you realize what it is you have in Christ? Do, do you recognize what he's done for you? I think one of the signs that you don't understand what you have in Christ and you don't understand the unique and radical nature of being a new creation is when you think you do. What we have in Christ, it supersedes anything I could possibly use to describe it. The fact that I have an audience with God, The fact that through Jesus, God views me not because I am faultless, blameless, and without accusation, but as He looks at Jesus, He sees me as faultless, blameless, and without accusation because He sees Christ's righteousness, not my feeble attempt at righteousness. Do you know what you have in Christ? Do you know what you have if you reject Christ? Do you know what you have if you replace Christ? The same thing you have if you reject Christ, because by replacing Christ, what you've said is, ah, I got something a little better. So, so we gladly dive into the work of the good news. And it's not all glorious and wonderful, But, but I'm going to be honest with you, we don't preach full condemnation all of the time over and over and over again because one of the things that you and I need to be reminded of, probably more than the fact that we're hopeless and that before God we stand guilty, I think the thing that we need to remember is that somehow in the middle of our hopelessness and worthlessness, Jesus said, I want that one. And you and I stand before him clean. Do you know what it is you have in Jesus? interesting and i don't have time to do it so i'm just going to read this part here okay that when you understand what it is you have in jesus the outcome is is that you are encouraged in heart look at look at chapter 2 verse 2 i want their hearts to be encouraged you're you're encouraged in heart you're comforted and strengthened with that with that truth you're unified together in love knit together as children of God because we are just one beggar telling another beggar about the great bread that we were given. So we're unified in love. It means we both act and react in complete humility. When we understand what it is we have in Christ, we have all the riches of complete understanding. Now let me make sure I say something about that. That doesn't mean you understand everything that the Bible says. Um. just a little side note, so when I was in high school the guy that I used to hear preach all the time used the King James Version now, it's a historical beautiful version when, when you're old enough to understand some basic 1600s language but as a kid I used to sit there and be like and then he said this horrible thing, which is actually true he said if you don't understand the words of God that means the spirit isn't in you enlightening you and illuminating it for you so you're lost. And I remember thinking, oh no. <laughs> the these and thou's really confuse me. The full assurance is this. My God loves me. And while I can't wrap my head around it, he demonstrated his love for me. That while it was an active rebellion against him, Christ died for me. And ultimately leads to the knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ. Do you know what you have in Christ? Do you recognize the good news as great news? How have you responded as the Holy Spirit's pulled on your heart? How have you responded to the many times you have heard the gospel declared that you're a sinner because your sin separated from God and helpless to do anything about it yourself. But God loved us, sent his son, Jesus Christ who, who lived a perfect life and then died a death that you should have died, was literally put in a tomb and yet literally rose from the dead where he still lives, the right hand of the Father. Because he's defeated sin and death and hell forever. You know what it is you have in Christ? May we remember. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. I mean, I I certainly cannot improve upon it. And I can definitely get in the way of it. Lord, no illustration can actually portray what it is you've done for us. No no story, no passion, no volume clearly communicates what we have in Christ. So I ask that in these moments as we finish our service with a few songs, as we'd reflect on the words, just remember what Jesus did for us. Father, I, I, I beg that you would be merciful to us today. I beg that the one who sits here this morning who's rejected Christ or replaced Christ, just in these moments, uh, would feel the tugging of the Spirit on their heart and they would yield to you and simply cry out from their heart for you to save their souls. Thank you that you have that power. Thank you that you've done that for so many here. Oh, Lord, I ask you would remind all of us what it is we have in Christ. It's through the blood of the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power of the resurrection that I pray these things. Amen.